The Army famously left behind physical assets when the Biden administration ordered the sudden pullout from Afghanistan. But the Army also airlifted tons and tons of vehicles, weapons, ordnance, and other gear. The Army also has completed the establishment of a national chain of what it calls MDRSs, Modernization, Displacement, and Repair Sites. For an update at this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington, I caught up with the commander of the Army Sustainment Command, Major General Chris Mohan. So as we think about the modernization strategy that the Army is currently executing, we know that we're going to have units that we have to displace a large amount of equipment as we field all the new systems that are coming online. The MDRS concept started with, okay, well, what do we have in the units right now, and what do we need to do to help them prepare for the rearm process when we're going to get all this? So the key piece of MDRS is that we're going to go in and as efficiently and expeditiously as possible, we're going to take all of their excess equipment out of those units. And when we say equipment, we mean what? Everything from tanks? Trucks, tanks, weapons. Uh, you know, as we feel like, for example, we're feeling across the Army, the new pistol. And so we'll go in and in conjunction with the fielding of the new pistol, we'll take all the old pistols out and then send them back to depot or send them wherever they need to go to other units, cascade them across. So there's really, you know, three big things that we want to do with MDRS. One is we want to get as much excess out as fast as possible. Two, we want to increase readiness of other units as we cascade equipment across the Army. And then three, we want to take the stuff, the excess equipment that we need to rebuild and get it back to the depots and arsenals as fast as possible to rebuild it so then we can put it back into the supply system. So these MDRSs now are up and running at pretty much all the installations? All the major installations across the Army. And, and again, we have a dedicated team at each site. We centrally manage it, decentralized execution at the actual installations in close coordination with our partners on the installations, the maneuver units. And through that process, you know, in our centralized execution, we're able to look at best practices, for example. Okay, how do we make the process smoother? We've gotten it down to a unit needs to turn in a Humvee this excess, three pieces of paper. I mean, as easy as possible for the soldiers, because the burden is on our young soldiers who are in the supply rooms who have to process all these transactions. So when we approach the problem set, we approach it from, hey, what can we do to make that soldier's life easier? And I imagine these centers must look sort of like giant pawn shops of military gear, <laughs> everything from pistols to trucks. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that last piece is clearing it out to get it off the installation as fast as possible. But we do have places where we have large motor pools as we're waiting, working with our partners, Defense Logistics Agency, for example, to process and ship out. And that's the third leg of the stool where we've got to work up to efficiently get that stuff out of the installation as possible. And you mentioned three pieces of paper. And let me, let me ask you this. Does this tie into the logistics systems that track all of this gear in the first place? You don't have to reinvent that one. Absolutely. So the first one is the piece of paper that directs the action. So we have a dedicated team that uh, looks across all the Army and the Army's equipment. We manage Army Sustainment Command as the lead material integrator execution arm for Army Material Command. And so we look and say, okay, your unit, you've got two excess Humvees. This unit has holes for two Humvees, so let's put them into the MDRS. We will, as fast as possible, ship them to fill those shortages in this other unit. And that comes down to a, a document that, uh, that we produce that says, hey, here's the hole, here's the excess, execute. Got it. And let me ask you about Afghanistan. Famously, a lot of stuff was left there. But a lot of stuff. A is, lot of stuff came out. Came back, yeah. Absolutely. So tell us about how that's being handled. So as we brought all that equipment out, it landed at a couple of different spots. Literally landed, you know, because vast majority of it, particularly at the end, was via airlift. And then we go into a, a giant yard, like an MDRS yard, 
and we sort it. We determine where it's going to go. Again, the same process. Okay, so do we need this to fill holes in? When I say holes, I'm talking about shortages of equipment in Army preposition stocks. So we'll fill holes there. Do units back in CONUS need this? Yes, we'll fill it. Or do we need to dispose of it through Defense Logistics Agency or other partners? Or in some cases, you know, cascading that equipment over to um, our allies over in the Middle East. And so that process is ongoing as we sort through the mass amounts of equipment we had after 20 years of, of war in Afghanistan. Yeah, and what is the biggest item in terms of quantity that, that is coming back and being processed? Do we know that? A lot of Humvees and MRAPs that we had in the battlefield. So Humvees, you know, as we field the JLTV across the Army, both overseas and APS, and then uh, back here in CONUS, um, we're doing a lot of displacements of Humvees. And then a lot of repair of Humvees, unit turns it in, we do the repair action on it to ship it to the other unit. Yeah, what is the life cycle of some of these things? Is there a point where when you have a hole and you have a machine and, and you might look at it and say, you know what, this is really ready for scrap. What's yeah. the process so, that determines um, that? A, a technical inspection happens and says that we believe this unit has this piece of equipment that should be in uh, fully mission-capable 1020 standards, which is the technical manual that determines serviceability of equipment. And then we do a validation of it and says, yes, it's 1020, and then we'll pass it on. If we have a list of equipment that is past a service life extension, and a lot of times those are just as-is turn-ins, and that's the piece. So right now, across the Army, about 77% of the stuff that we need to get out of units is as-is turn-ins because it's being displaced by new modern equipment. And so we just need it. It's excess equipment. Give it to us, and we'll get rid of it for you. Yeah, give us a sense of what equipment, what's the top of the list for replacement and modernization. So JLTVs, Mm -hmm. uh, new weapons systems. Uh, We've done M1 tanks. We're taking their old tanks and putting them back to the depot and giving them new tanks. We've got some uh, Bradley fighting vehicles that we've done, uh, particularly at Fort Stewart. And we see MDRS as, again, being that model so Fort Stewart was a test case where we fielded new equipment to a Brigade and 3rd Infantry Division, and we did it in mass. worked out great, but we took that, and now we need to scale it and use the capability that we have with MDRS linked and in concert with the acquisition community who is fielding new equipment, and then we take that and do a, almost like a refresh of a unit. Take their old stuff, give them new stuff in a very synchronized manner, as synchronized as as possible. So if I'm a post office or a VFW hall or a local town hall, how do I get one of those retired things to paint and put out front (laughs) for perpetuity? There is, you know, it's the Army, right? So there is a process for everything. Tank Automotive uh, Armaments Command, TACOM, um, has an office that they do that. They actually do that. All right, so, well, I may put one on my front lawn. I can, you know, just to give the neighbors a little bit of a thrill. And let me just ask you, does this tie in in any way with retrograde operations? Because wouldn't that result in things that have to be sent to the MDRSs? Yeah, it's one and the same, executed in different spots. You know, so the Afghan retrograde that we are currently still working through in Kuwait is not exactly called MDRS, but it's the same concept. Take it, reutilize it, get it to units to increase their readiness, or turn it into the depots or to DLADS. Yeah, that's a good point. This happens worldwide because the Army is pretty much in every time Mm -hmm. zone at some point. Absolutely. And so is Army Sustainment Command. Indeed. (laughs) Major General Chris Mohan is commander of the Army Sustainment Command. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with all of our AUSA coverage. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was 
it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, 
we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of.